VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and I thank you for joining us. Now, in the studio with me, it's Bill Edgar making his return, one of your favorites. And it's former Arsenal midfielder Stuart Robson. Wonder if we'll be talking some Wenger later. That's right. Uh, the longest-serving manager in English football uh, will be stepping down at the end of the season. Henry Winter will be joining us to discuss that. That's how big this item of news is. But we're going to begin at Wembley. Why are we beginning at Wembley not with Wenger? Well, because our producer, Charlie, made the point that people might be all Wengered out and all those United fans might be switching off this podcast and be like, oh, well, you know, more Wenger. Uh, don't worry. We're going to start with Mourinho versus Pochettino on Saturday. Is that how the Manchester United fans speak? Some of the ones I know, yes. Bill's a Manchester United fan. He speaks differently. Bill, speak. Hello, Gab. See, there you go. Okay, so it's another FA Cup final for um, Jose Mourinho. They overcome Tottenham. Um, what was the turning point in this game? Because it looked to me like United just stepped it up in the second half and Spurs had no answer. I thought the turning point was the equalising goal. Uh, Tottenham were running riots. Son, although he didn't play at his best, they kept on finding him out on that left-hand side. Eriksen was finding space. Harry Kane early on in the game and twisted and turned away from challenges. Manchester United looked leggy. They looked as though they didn't have an answer to what Tottenham were doing. The midfield players couldn't get Herrera, who ended up being one of the top players, was beaten too easily early on. But the change happened when Pogba won the ball in midfield off Dembele, produced a magnificent cross for um, for Sanchez and the game changed suddenly Tottenham went into their shell and Manchester United grew in confidence yeah Pogba I mean people say I'm obsessed with the guy but I thought he played really well he had that other he had an incredible pass too for, for for Lukaku which Lukaku then put wide Bill um is this like when we were talking about all oh, big name players and stuff I mean Alexis Sanchez also very productive yeah yeah is this why they're there Absolutely. They, Pogba and Sanchez are absolutely world-class players who um, who must make a difference eventually. I mean, Sanchez has taken a few games to get used to the new system. Uh, I've mentioned before, I mean, when United are on the counter-attack, often Sanchez will go up there and he's either on his own or there's one teammate up there with him. So a bit different words with Arsenal, had a lot more players in support. So you've got to get used to holding the ball up a bit more, the United a bit more cautious but he's a sensational player and will no doubt be a great success but Pogba um, 
uh, I've said this before, I thought he had a decent first season. I thought he was a bit underrated just because of his, his price tag and because of his haircuts and all the rest of it. But he had a decent first season, I thought. And uh, he started well this season. Then he got injured, and when he came back, he, he's, he's been quite off form. But on Saturday, he was uh, dominating. He brings something different to United that no other player can. He's just so strong. He just holds on to the ball, and he was excellent on uh, on Saturday, albeit in a, a three, which I think it has to be. People have said this a lot, but uh, either struggles with concentration uh, in terms of his defensive side, or he, he just doesn't think it's important enough to track people. When with Tottenham's goal, he, uh, Pogba was the wrong side of Ericsson when Ericsson made his run down the right, so Ericsson had a free cross, so you can blame him for that, Pogba, but uh, otherwise I think he's a fantastic player. Bill Edgar giveth and Bill Edgar taketh away. I, I love it when you go all biblical there, Bill. United's back four is all, uh, and De Gea, of course, all Ferguson-era signings. Obviously, people say that's an indictment of the, of the club and whatever else. I'm assuming Bayer would have played if, if available. But you think Mourinho's going to stick with these guys next year? Because he likes his sort of veteran loyals. Like. Every so often, Smalling and Jones come together again and they play well for four or five games. And everyone says, maybe they were the centre-half partnership that we always thought they were going to be when they were the under-21 pair everyone the said they Vidic and Ferdinand yeah they were going to be the players That's, they were bought almost together uh, to be exceptional players uh, sectional um, uh, back two and on occasions they show that and they defended well in the second half of the game the other day they were they were caught on a couple of occasions early on Smalling um, is being told by Southgate that he's not quite good enough on the ball but I don't think Mourinho is too worried about that Jones is okay on the ball but not always good in the air so they have their frailties but I can't see any reason to get rid of them at the moment. Uh, the other players, Lindelof that's come in, hasn't been anywhere near as good as those two. And Bailly is a good athlete, but again, I don't think he reads danger particularly well and he's not great on the ball. So those two are as good as any they've got at the moment. I think they're they're becoming more consistent. They've had problems with inconsistency. Also, they're the big problem is, is injuries, exactly. Now, Smalling has improved a lot, a lot in that sense and Jones is getting a bit better. Um, but they're... they're at their best, I mean, they're, they're so fast, they're agile, they're strong. I mean, you could, you know, if, if you saw them for the first time, you think, well, this is England's partnership, you know, forever. Why are we even, why is there a debate about who else might play? But, uh, of course, they've, they have been inconsistent. Um, as you say, Jones is, does have a slight problem in the A's, only 5'11", I think, which is uh, tiny for a well, centre Well, I think back. he got exposed a few years ago, didn't he, by... Shola Amiobi, was it, when Newcastle, when they went to Newcastle and, and Amiobi scored a two or three. And from yeah. that moment on, uh, he was then played at right back. He was then played in midfield. So they never trusted him at centre-half. Alex Ferguson didn't trust him at centre-half. No. Now Mourinho's taking him back into that centre-half position. I want to talk Pochettino because there's an area where Mourinho excels. And this is something that people in, in football, in every sport, they talk about. They talk about sort of killer instinct, getting the team over the line, this sort of undefinable quality that when you're right there and... You know, you get to the final and, and you, you, you push through, right? And Mourinho, in fact, hasn't lost many finals. Um, I tend to believe that there is such a thing because there are certain people who seem to keep excelling in those situations. But then I get a little bit analytical and I say, you know what? Better teams tend to win. United were the favorites in this game. There's, there's no mystical, magical killer instinct. It's just well, a small sample size. Going into the game? 
they're ahead of Spurs on the table. They have they better are, players. I, I mean, I, and the fact that he was at Wembley uh, was, you know, counting against them. Okay, they had the same number of supporters, but it was still Tottenham's I, home. I would, home I ground. would say, having seen their recent games, that Tottenham were the, were the more informed team. That they had yeah, more maybe, quality. But, I mean. But okay. I'm just backing up right. your point that there, that that when that first goal went in, the equaliser went in, the stuffing seemed to be knocked out of Spurs. That belief well, they had early on, where they were going to, they got the, the early I, goal. And, and I don't like doing this, but I, I, I said a few years ago, you know, with the the, the year that, that that Spurs collapsed and Leicester won the title, that you know maybe there was an issue of of personality that maybe this team, other than 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 Dele Alli and. And Alderweireld, maybe they were a little soft. Certainly, you know, Eriksson, Kane, even Dyer, admittedly, was fouling people. Like that, notwithstanding, like these were basically kind of like quite choir boys. But you didn't necessarily see that obvious leadership. But I honestly don't know. But then again, stuff like this happens, and and I wonder what, how do they go so limp all of a sudden? Yeah, I, well, I'm not sure it's quite an implosion, and then that. United did play well, and and you think well they they got knocked out of the Champions League by Juventus, but actually they played really well. They were unlucky to get knocked out by Juventus, and they could and have been three 0 down at halftime. They in could the have first been, but leg. overall the two ties they deserved to win. I thought comfortably, and and I, and also I, I agree with you there. And but, also that, but, but, but but I'm saying is but by the whole point of the the killer instinct argument, I said I don't know that if I buy it, but a lot of people yeah. bring it up, is that that's exactly what you're lacking, right? You can outplay the opposition, but then you don't get it over the line, whereas Mourinho's kind of the reverse of that. 20 minutes into the game on Saturday, Tottenham are going to win the game by... You're looking at it, they're going to win the game four, four goals to nil. They're, they're totally dominating the play. They're playing a tempo that Manchester United couldn't cope with. They were running beyond Manchester United's midfield. It was making it hard for the centre-backs, Smalling and Jones, to make decisions because there was movement all around them. And suddenly, as soon as the goal went in, Tottenham went back to playing at a slow tempo, playing across the back. It was almost that fear was set in. And that's, I think, what you're talking about. Do you understand the sign substitution as well? Uh, no, not really. I thought he, he, he was the one that was finding a bit of space. He didn't play his very best. He didn't make the right decisions. No, he the outlet. He, he provides yeah. wits. Like he it, was going to seems... pace past people. He was trying to make things happen. Um, one thing I'm Pochettino and we in the media sometimes are guilty of reading too much about this, but you know, he comes out afterwards and he starts talking about Tottenham in the third person and he said, with me or with another manager. Is this just us reading too much out of it or did he know what he was doing when he said that? It did sound a bit suspicious. Yeah, he's at worst. He's saying, uh, "I'm going to leave unless you give me a much bigger playing budget uh, in the summer." Um, uh, and even at best, he's just getting his excuses in and saying, "Well, let, you know, let, let's look at uh, the relative budgets of the 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 big six. So uh, whenever Tottenham uh, have a bad result like this, then it shouldn't reflect badly on him." Now, this season, with your subscription to the Times and the Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League, Champions League, Europa League, and the FA Cup. And on top of that, much better than this, you get all our excellent content. Now, just £8 for an eight-week trial. Um, Bill, your favourite goal of the weekend in the Premier League or the FA Cup? Uh, I'd like to Olivier Giroud for Chelsea in the FA Cup. Ah, the dancing Frenchman. Yeah, dancing Frenchman. Firstly, um... 
Hazard, which was who, who was just unbelievable, uh, plucking the ball out of the sky and then knocking it on for Giroud in a tight space. But the, the fact that um, Giroud took a few touches, also dummied the ball to beat players by just you know dummying the ball, left four defenders and the keeper all on their backsides and scoring. So look great. Big special worth checking out, Stuart. Uh, I'm I'm going for the goal that Pogba made for Sanchez. I thought uh, it showed Pogba for being the world-class player that I think he is and can be and potentially the best midfield player in the world. And I want to see him do more of that because when he was at Juventus, I thought he could do anything. Who knew Stuart Robson was such a Pogba fanboy? Now, in the other semi-final, uh, Chelsea defeat Southampton uh, 2-0. Let's start with the lineup because he puts Fabregas in there, presumably thinking that Southampton were going to park the bus, which I thought they kind of did, right? The, so, so no, Tadic, Redmond, Ward Prowse, all the guys who can play are on the bench, and you have Long and Austin up front. Um, and he starts Giroud instead of Morata, which you might tell me, Stuart, he's been vindicated given the amount of chances that Morata missed in the second half. Uh, well, as you probably already know, uh, anybody that plays centre-forward for Antonio Conte has to be good with his back-to-goal because so much goes through the centre-forward. When it goes into Hazard, he's not... Where Hazard and William do so well is that they're flicking balls around the corner. The centre-forward has to be ready for it, to play the little one-twos. If he's not ready, the manager's going to go mad and the other players will go mad at him. And I think Giroud has possibly done that better than Morata has done well, Morata it. Morata should be doing it better Morata, because he's more skillful. Morata should be doing it much better. And that's why he was bought to do that job. That's why Batshuayi couldn't do it because he wasn't good enough with his back to goal. And he was hoping that Giroud could do the job. And he did it to a certain degree. He lost possession four or five times when Shida was too tight to him or, or tight to him and nicked the ball off him. But that's why I think he was picked in the team. And I suppose he was vindicated because Giroud scores the first goal and then when he gets tired, he puts on Morata and Morata and Aspilicueta did what they've done all season. Aspilicueta bending that ball in, Morata finding a bit of space in between the fullback and the centre-half. So I can understand why he played Giroud. You could see them, uh, if the season was just starting now, I wouldn't be surprised if Giroud and Morata played 19 league games each and each went off after an hour replaced by the other one. They they seem... Uh, it's Morata's quite, it's a, quite hard Morata's a better player in my view uh, yeah. having seen him at Juventus having seen him at Real Madrid but he just hasn't played well enough for Chelsea so far this season he obviously has a higher ceiling I think now now Mark Hughes um, or Sparky unhappy with uh, uh, the lack of, uh, of of VAR when there was an incident when uh, when Austin seemed to collide with, with, with Caballero and Caballero kind of went behind the goal line it was ruled a foul it was not a goal he wanted VAR to to review that, which incidentally I'm not I'm not familiar with them with the protocol because I don't think you can review that right because he couldn't review it because the referee blew a whistle for a foul before the ball went into the net so he's not reviewing a goal. Yeah, exactly. So he he'd already blown for a foul. If he'd have let the goal happen. Then it would have been reviewed and he could say, no, it's a foul or, yeah, I'm going to give a goal. As with a possible offside, you let the play go on for a couple of seconds, see if the ball goes in. But once he blew his whistle for a foul, Hmm. he couldn't change his mind. No, no. Um, Beyond that, to me, and maybe it's sort of my soft continental background, but um, how is that not a foul running into the goalkeeper like that? yeah, I, I think well, this is, this that isn't your, like... that's your soft continental <laughs> mentality. But I I'm, think uh... I'm sorry, I thought that was the days of Nat Lofthouse were over. I know. What, what, what do you think he did badly? Then? <clears throat> he, he's, the ball's above him. He's backing in to try and win the ball in the air, and the goalkeeper makes a complete mess of it. 
well, I mean, yeah, it's not quite Night Loft House, uh, Shoulder Charge, obviously, but but I think... Uh, <laughs> but, but I I think uh, actually keepers in that situation generally do get a, a free kick. If they get a little nudge, it was a little nudge, and they, uh, as a result, they're, they're, they're off balance and they, they can't Goal catch can it. Goalkeepers can go with their knees up, you, they can go and yeah. right into the back and send right. the forwards, and but oh, that, that's okay. Yeah. But, but that's how the no, game is officiated today. You can't yeah. just, you, you, you can't, like, time travel back to the days of Matt Lofthouse yeah. just because just but, because Sparky but, thinks that it's the but, right but, thing but to there do. Was, there was hardly any contact between the two. There was enough contact for Caballero to fall backwards into his own goal, right? No, he only fell backwards because he dropped the ball and then tried to catch it going backwards. Mm. I must say, I thought he was knocked back a little, and and you only have to be knocked back six inches, and you and you can't catch it too easily. I mean, it's it's such a, a tricky one, uh, such a grey area. How much is some? How much contact should you be allowed? In the end, but, it doesn't matter because once he'd given the free kick, he could never have reviewed it. No, it, it wasn't a disallowed goal. It was it was a free kick. Yeah, I think, you know, more... Sparky was making an excuse because, I've got to say, I thought his side set up so negatively and didn't offer anything to the game whatsoever. Well, Until the last five Until, minutes. Yeah. It's unbelievable. The yeah. last five minutes, they were they were like the, the champions. They, they were irresistible. What happened, you know? We, we Southampton have obviously been in cup finals before. I, is this a case where, you know, to be fair to Hughes, he says, look, I'm here for one job, right? I'm here to keep us up. That's why I'm going to save my skill players and, and, and play these other guys. And I'll just park the bus and, and, and see what happens. And we'll try to hang in there. But ultimately, I will be judged on whether on whether I get us out of the relegation zone. He won't get them out of the relegation zone. I think they're, they're doing Okay, well, thank you, Nostradamus. But what I'm saying is that was his plan, right? Whereas if he, if he plays... I'm not sure it was his plan. I think he thought that if he played with two up front and they kept on sticking the ball in behind Chelsea's back three, he could cause some problems. And it happened on a couple of occasions early on in the game. Why would you play those guys and not play the good players? Because they're not going to run in behind. They were going to play long ball football. They were going to stick... Long has caused Chelsea problems before when Chelsea tried to play a high... But Chelsea's defenders read it quite easily yesterday. Rudiger, I thought, was excellent. He just backs off at the right time. Cahill still has problems. And Aspilicuert is one of the best defenders in the Premier League. It was only a change of tactics. It wasn't really just leaving out all his best players. I mean, everybody else was playing. He would have played otherwise in the league. So I think he was going for it. Obviously, the the league is the priority because that's what his reputation... If they, say, got to the final but lost and they went down on a CV... player that he left out that I think he would have played if it had been a Premier League game was Tadic because Redmond hasn't played well enough this year Ward Prowse has fallen out favour although he's a decent player Tadic is the only one he left out that would probably normally play I don't know when I saw that with a back three with uh, Bednarek and Hoiberg and I was like why don't you just go to them I know it's not as your football but just, just just take it at them play the guys who are good you know the guys who can play and pass don't make poor Mario Lamina, who on his day is good really, player. really good. good don't force him to go and, and, and chase Hazard and the little guys around all the time. You know, give him a platform to do something. Having seen Southampton last year when they went to the League Cup final and outplayed Manchester United, only for Manchester United to win the game, to see them yesterday, what has gone wrong at Southampton? I mean, a couple of yeah. managers, but nothing's cha- nothing's changed yeah. in terms of what's gone on this season. You look at Southampton and West Brom, both in the top half last season. West Brom are going down, Southampton almost certainly. Well, There's not that much change in terms of personnel. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts. 
Calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, It's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Cross wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan romash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to i'm sure it's only a matter of time head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information Love the game? Then don't miss The Game Daily. It's your lunchtime update from football's finest writers, and it's only at thetimes.co.uk. So unless you've been living uh, under a rock of some kind, you might have heard the momentous news from uh, uh, Friday, Arsene Wenger announcing that he would resign as manager of Arsenal at the end of of the season. We hope to be able to be joined by uh, by Henry Winter, who's got some great finger stories in a few minutes. And we'll look at sort of how this transpired. We'll look at the issue of whether he was pushed or whether he jumped, as they say in the lingo. I would like you to both say, and Stuart, this might be tricky, I'd like you to both say three nice things that Arsene Wenger did for English football and for Arsenal. I would say that his team when uh, Lundberg and Perez were playing in the wide areas, they were the side that started to break down off sidelines by making out runs from outside to in, which changed the way defenders had to defend. They couldn't just squeeze up and hold a high line. They had to worry about runs from outside to in. Defenders had to make bigger and better decisions. So he, I think his team, whether it was him or whether it was the two players themselves, they started to find ways that made the offside line not so hard to break down. There's one. Uh, his patience. I thought he's a, he's a very patient manager. When other managers, I think, would have got rid of players, when, when players hadn't played particularly well, he showed great patience. He didn't always react as most managers, an English manager, would react. If you, if you don't like a, what a player's done after a couple of games, you shout and scream at them and get them out of the team. He didn't do that. He showed a lot of patience for players and he allowed them to come back again. You know, there's lots of players that may have never played for Arsenal under another manager, Boué, when he had a couple of bad games. But Arsenal Pires himself has yeah. had a very had, tough yeah. first six months. So he, he showed patience to, to those sort of players and he knew that with a bit of love and an arm around their shoulder, they'd come back and be players again. So that's something that not all managers would do. So there's a second. And through his knowledge of nutrition and um, sports science at that time, I think he uh, prolonged the careers of some of uh, Arsenal's ageing players like the Tony Adams, the Lee Dixons and those sort of players, the Nigel Winterburns, the, the David right. Stevens. So that, there's three things I'll give you. Bill? Um, ooh, three. Well, there's one main one is that he... Uh, Certainly the second half of his 
reign. He, he almost did a service to English football by putting out an entertaining team that was never going to win the league, but it was always putting on a show, you know, a West End show for everybody. They invented the kind of the one-two in the opposition's goal area and the six-yard box almost, the extra pass, which was which really didn't seem to be the the best thing to do from an Arsenal point of view, but it was, it was fantastic to watch because occasionally it would come off and there'd be this unbelievable series of intricate passes which led to goals, which was an amazing spectacle, and he just went on and on and on. Stuart touched on the preparation. I mean, whether um, the diet and the, the training methods would have changed anyway eventually, I don't know. Certainly he, he pushed them through that's probably the early one on. aspect that's been easiest for other clubs yeah. to copy. Yeah, because you just go to their right. training ground and see how it's done, yeah. Um, and on a personal level, I think it's, it's great for... English football in terms of when he was asked a question about something about a, a football issue he'd always come back with something very well, he does still he isn't left yet always comes out with some very interesting and uh, intelligent uh, thought about something if he's asked about some change in the offside law or VAR or any issue like that he'll often come back with something interesting whereas Ferguson would just kind of ignore the question quite honestly or just sort of pay little attention to it really whereas Wenger would always come come up with something interesting so I thought that was he added to the debate about uh, issues and interest in English football which I thought was good. Joining us now is uh, is Henry Winter who Henry I, I love the story that, that, that you've told uh, I had heard it before about how I think it was nine of you on the very first day that he arrived you know Arson Who was, was famously was, was the title in one national newspaper, nine of you were taken into a room with with Wenger, and can you talk a little bit about what happened next? Yeah, sure. Hi, guys. Um, yeah, was David Dean was obviously concerned about some of the headlines. I mean, the slight myth around Arsenal who it was a billboard as much as a headline in the Evening Standard, but clearly there was a lot of scepticism initially amongst the players, obviously a slightly blinkered media to an extent at that time. It's not like sort of social media or YouTube now when you can immediately within 30 seconds find out. Sort of details. So back in 1996, David Dean was was concerned about this. So he got Arsene Wenger into the, the boardroom at Highbury and he sat all down and Wenger came in and he spoke for 45, 50 minutes with a few questions along the way, but basically outlining his philosophy, who he was, his passion for Arsenal, his understanding of it. He almost sounded like the club historian, his, his knowledge already of the club. I know he'd been invited there a few times before to, to watch matches before he even became manager. So I think it was to sort of educate and enlighten us in that sort of very Arsenal way of doing it sort of quite sort of subtly over, uh, over tea and cake. You know, if you had to isolate the, the top two or three things that, that he's contributed, uh, not just to Arsenal, but to the English game, um, how, how would you do that? Well, randomly, improved training facilities, improved diet, stretching. Um, I think the Emirates as a stadium in terms of the quality, not simply of the facilities, but the quality of the staff they have there. Um, that, that certainly set a new benchmark. And obviously other clubs have, you know, went around Colney, went around the Emirates and have used uh, Arsenal's sort of ideas and Wenger's innovations for their own and sort of taken it on another step. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the commitment to uh, entertain, I think, was just fantastic. So, yeah, I mean, so many positives. But I, mean, I was at uh, the Emirates yesterday and I was really surprised by the reaction of the fans. I mean, we were just looking around each other, partly sort of walking in. It was quite quiet outside. I was expecting far more of a sort of emotional outpouring 
for. I, I understand all the sort of the apathy, and I've been writing about it for sort of seven, eight years in terms of the obvious decline under Wenger. But I, I actually thought the Arsenal fans would say, right, we've got our way. He is leaving. Now back him. It was very, very strange yesterday. And I think a lot of the pieces and the. And, you know, um, since then, have reflected that. Obviously, on the back of the um, the press conference as well, in which he had a fairly measured pop at the fans. It wasn't a rant or anything. Whatever you might read in certain headlines, but he obviously wanted. He, he was hurt, and he wanted to get his point out about the uh, about the fans. Um, but yeah, it was really strange. I mean, if that had been Anfield or you know, uh, another club which had an emotional engagement with a manager, even even if it's you know, turned sour over recent years, the fact that he is going. I was expecting far more su- support for him. Um, but, you know, it just reflects the, you know, the depth of the schism that's happened over the last six, seven years. I, I want to try to bring a little bit of clarity as to, to what exactly happened and, and your understanding of, of what happened, Henry. For me, it's fairly simple. At 10 o'clock on Friday morning, there's an announcement from Arsenal with a statement from Wenger saying that he was going to step down at the end of the season. And literally, five minutes later, an article um, by Josh Robinson goes up in the Wall Street Journal, which explains that Wenger is resigning now rather than at the end of the season because he wanted to avoid being sacked in the summer. And he was resigning now rather than at the end of the season because he wanted clarity, he didn't want uncertainty to go and um, and, and and affect the team between now and uh, and the end of the campaign. Um, that's why I, like many others, came to the conclusion quite evidently that you know this we can call it a resignation. Oh, isn't it great? He's leaving on his terms, but you know it's it's not quite it's not quite Sir Alex leaving um, Manchester United when he did and that you know Wenger is still still sad and he would have wanted to stay another year um but at the same time it seemed that you know when when they put the question to Wenger at the weekend he he said well I said everything I needed to say in that statement didn't confirm or deny Gazidis himself didn't quite confirm or deny what what's your take is this kind of like one of those games that maybe for legal reasons clubs and the media play no, I think he, it's clear he was pushed. I don't think there can be any doubts about that. I mean, this is a man who's obsessed with Arsenal. You know, he's never broken a contract in his life. So clearly, you know, he, he was he was pushed. I don't think there's there's any doubt about that. Whether the pressure came from the boards, uh, media, or less so the media, uh, or the fans as well. The sight of all those empty seats, the fact that you know, I've got a lot of friends who are supporters there, and a lot of them who are hardcore Arsenal fans were just delaying on um, club-level renewals. And that was... <laughs> money talks loudest in football, and I think that was clearly an issue for, for the club. This emotional and financial issue for them was, was clear. That press conference actually yesterday was quite sad, and you could just see this, this wounding. It's interesting, I've been talking to some of the, uh, the, the French reporters who were at Wembley on Saturday and then at Emirates yesterday, and talking about how, how and why and of what substance Fenger will do a book. And there's a, a colleague of his he knew from his Strasbourg days who is sort of, uh, likely to do it. But it's interesting what some of the French journalists were saying. They said they didn't think it would be a particularly good book because Fenger, I mean, it'd be a fascinating book in terms of there'll be genuine insight, but he won't go around 
blasting everyone, you know, because there won't be a chapter exploding Bazidis in it, because that's just not Benga's style. But you could just tell yesterday, this is a very civilised man, and you know, like Stuart being very critical of him, but, you know, he's, he's a very genuine, dignified man. So, and the, the sad thing is, is, I can't see how this being a, a sort of a gentle you know go fondly into the night this i think this is going to be quite messy this uh this 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 departure and please spare me all the comparisons with ferguson the, the situation is different on so many grounds ferguson basically went in and got van persie because he effectively knew it was his last season got van persie from arsenal sign of weakness from wenger that he allowed van persie to go got the title and Ferguson went off into the sunset with millions of other things to do because he's a character like that. Ferguson went on a high, out on a high. Now, obviously, there's the potential for Wenger to go out on a slight high with you know, Europe's B competition. Um, but, but still, there's, there's, there's really no comparison there. Ferguson was completely in control of his, uh, you know, apart from decision by a referee and sending Nani off at, um, against Real Madrid. Ferguson was in control that season, whereas Wenger ceded control. You put it like that, I I, I get a little bit, I, I get a little bit melancholy here, um, because my instinct is that it didn't need to be this way. It was was the fundamental mistake on on Arsenal's part, also in terms of of endure, of maybe ensuring a, a sort of a, a tidier exit, basically not saying goodbye at the end of last season. And even if you had to be, you know, hard about it, you know, you would have saved yourself the Lacazette money, you would have saved yourself, even the whole thing that they gave him a two-year deal rather than a one-year deal. Uh, is, is is that where they where they kind of, you know, from a business perspective, kind of dropped the ball? The, you know, great minds at Harvard Business School were probably doing pieces on this and lectures on this in the years to come and, and the power vacuum and how authority when it's so you know, centralised in one individual as it has been in Wenger, it is it is very very dangerous, uh, particularly when there are threats from other clubs financially and with better coaches coming in and with Wenger clearly being overtaken. There was no succession planning. There was no challenging of Wenger. I mean, you know, you've got Stuart there. You know, Tony Adams to an extent, Patrick Vieira. You know, all these individuals who know and have the club at their heart and who are intelligent individuals and can contribute. They were almost not ostracised, too strong a word, but Patrick Vieira should have been embedded in the heart of Arsenal for the last sort of four or five years. But Wenger doesn't like confrontation, he doesn't like people standing up for him. You can look at that in his team, teams reflect their manager, and there's no real backbone in that team to stand up when things get difficult. And, you know, Gazidis should have realised that earlier. Conky, of course, he's an absentee owner, should have realised that earlier, should have got more involved. So this culture of no authority, no challenging was was just allowed to uh, to, to fester like topsy, and it, it was just and it's damaged. So everyone's talking about oh he should have gone after the last cup final. He should have gone three or four years ago because everyone you know you you could see the decline. Little things like you know the oh you know the one comparison you can make with Ferguson as a contrast is Ferguson always rotated his number twos to challenge him more. You know, Wenger didn't do that enough. There was no one challenging him, and there was this just drift allowed to uh, to, to, to accelerate. So, look, it's good. To, the, the board have now acted in the past year to create this uh, this structure, this more modern structure with the individuals they're brought in to sort of accelerate recruitment and not allow players' contracts to, to, to run down. Um, but really, they should have been doing that 
a long time ago. I think when Gazidis arrived, he came in with obviously experience of MLS. He's an you know he's an intelligent individual, but just because you've got a blue from playing at Cambridge doesn't mean that you've got the intelligence and the mouse to deal with the jungle of English football and contracts and whatever. And the fact that Wenger also helped appoint him. I just think that Gazidis has to, to bear some culpability for, for the decline, albeit I think he's responded well over the last year. Henry, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks, Henry. Cheers, guys. I want to take it back to this point in terms of the, the what next because you made a... I don't want to be so negative about Mizenstadt and Lehi, but I am, I, I am interested in, in this theme, and Mizenstadt has a certain background. Yeah. Salehi has a very different background. They're both football scouts. They have to select a manager who might come from yet another footballing background. You look at, for example, the success at, at City, where you have a chief executive, director of football, and a manager, all of whom come from exactly mm. the same background. Can that be an issue? I mean, I, I know, obviously, people have written sort of, you know, management textbooks and, and, and sort of Harvard Business School studies about this. But are you better off with different ideas and let's have conflict and people coming from that'll be fruitful and lead us to better outcomes or or not? Because when I see this Mizenstadt and the first thing you do is you go and you buy the guy from your own old club who wants to leave anyway and has been kind of a pain about leaving. And the only reason you leave in the summer is nobody wanted him at that price. And this is your, you know, your first sort of genius signing. And then the other guy gets Mkhitaryan because he's a skillful player. And, you know, I think the quote was not from him, but from somebody close to him was that, well, you know, Mkhitaryan in the open market, you know, you're saving yourself 70 million. I don't know. I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know where, where, where the common ground, I mean, it's, it's an interesting experiment, but generally most clubs don't operate that way. Because I think there can always be conflict with that because... Ultimately, the manager... If it works, it's a fascinating yeah. experiment and groundbreaking too. The head coach is the one that's going to dictate the tactics. And we don't even have that guy yet. It's, yeah, so he, the head guy, when he comes in, he's going to dictate the tactics. And if the chief scout is looking at other players and buying players that don't suit the tactics of the manager, you've got a massive problem. So they, there has to be lots of conversations. There has to be a lot of uh, people getting together saying, well, this is what I look for from... This is the game style that we're going to play. This is the tactics we're going to use. I need this sort of player to be able to do that. And the, and, and the, the chief scout might come up with it. It still doesn't suit the way I want to play the game. I had it as a, as a, as a head coach when the manager bought a player that didn't suit what I was trying to do. And we parted company. I said, because I'm going to have to change the whole tactics of the team for a signing that you've made. And it can't work. Bill, look, looking ahead to this, obviously the next manager is going to be in a really important cog in this machine. And typically there's names out there all the time. Uh, already there's, there's talk of, of Luis Enrique. Thomas Tuchel was linked uh, before as well, although Tuchel had a really poor relationship reportedly with, with Mislinstadt. If you were an Arsenal fan, would you trust these guys to not just come up with a good solution, but come up with a solution that they fully endorse and own and so that we don't get into a situation like, remember at Liverpool when like you had Brendan and the committee and if it was a good signing, it was Brendan signing, it was a bad signing, it was the committee and all this nonsense. One uh, manager I, I think might fit in might be uh, Eddie Howe. He has a, a similar style of play so he could at least uh, fit in with the players they've got at the moment. Uh, an wow. attacking fluid sort of play. He's, I mean, he's, he's got a similar style of play to who? To Wenger? To, to Arsenal's current... Do you think so? I, I, I think it's it's actually very different. 
Well, I would say that they have to go away from what Wenger's done because what Wenger's done hasn't been good enough for the last 10 years and they have to get the balance right. You know, Arsene Wenger has never concentrated on the defensive side of the game. You don't want a coach that's just going to concentrate on the defensive side of the game, but all the great coaches get the balance right between the attacking side of the game and the defensive side of the game. They've got to have more structure, so it's got to be a structured coach, not just a general manager. It's got to be someone who's going to be out on the training field and tell players, this is your role in the team. This is what I expect from you. Well, this is Howard what we do. That. I'm not sure Eddie Howe would do that. When, when I sat down to him with, with him for, for when we wrote the Italian job, he... He spent a long time explaining why he played 4-4-2 and why, you know, he says you could prove mathematically that 4-4-2 offers the best defensive cover. It's the most efficient way to cover the majority of the pitch, you know, allowing, adjusting for, for the defensive areas. And he also talked about how, you know, football's changed and it was important to have sort of powerful athletic people, especially in midfield who could combine as he put it, quality and, and quantity. And obviously he mentioned Petit and, and, and Vieira. And it was interesting because he moved completely away from that. Um, what year, uh, just remind what year was that that you spoke to him? 2005 it would have been. Hmm. Uh, maybe went into tremendous detail, right? And it, sort it was of his... about 2009 where he went, suddenly went from two, two up front to one up front. Yeah. Suddenly, just like that. And, uh, and then last season everything. he went to three at the back. Then, then suddenly he's had to go at three at the back. Yeah, um, after twenty years. Yeah. It, it's interesting those, and also the, you know the, the the type of players. I, you know, Jack Wilshire, somebody with his build. Could you see him in, in the Arsenal of old when 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 you had as I said Petit and Vieira and you know somebody like like Ray Parler who maybe wasn't the biggest but was obviously very very tough physically in midfield. I don't know. It, it's. I, I find it to be really interesting. So do you think I, I don't think there's anything wrong with evolving and changing, no. you know, but I'd love to, for him one day when he's ready to go and explain the mindset and talk about how, why he made those changes, how he made them and, and, and whatnot. He, and he went from, because you know, I didn't cover Arsenal, didn't see Arsenal uh, particularly when he had his success. So I only started watching Arsenal oh, in their last season. That explains a lot. Yeah, and their last season at the Emirates. That's when I was asked to analyse Arsenal yeah. and what they did. So, I came, uh, when I went to us, I thought, this bloke, I, everyone was telling him he's a genius, this is what he can do, look, well, look how he's changed English, he's an he's a, he's a absolute brilliant coach. And I started to then look at it and think, I'm questioning, I'm listening to, the, to his press conferences, I'm listening to what he's talking about in the game, and I'm not seeing that he's reading the game properly, I'm seeing things go wrong, I'm seeing teams come up with ideas that he didn't seem to be able to cope with, the same mistakes were happening time and time again. So then I was asking him a question, the question... What had happened before, was that by luck or was that pre-planned? Because he then went, as, as you said, he went away from all the things that made them a good team into playing, and he, 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 they were aggressive side, they lacked discipline at times, they had lots of players sent to a team that he then said, we're fouled too much, we're not protected by the referees, we need to play football, we need to be more creative. Why did that change? Perhaps he thought he'd, he'd won three league titles uh, with the aggressive approach, and he thought, right, I want to... To, to do something even better. Perhaps you've heard Brian Clough say that uh, you know that uh, he, you can always win titles better yeah. than somebody else. <laughs> I, mean, I, think, yeah. I think it's worth it's worth remembering that you know we're talking about I think in the Premier League era only Sir Alex has won more titles, and yes, Mourinho's won as many. Okay, but only Sir Alex has won more, and those seven FA Cups in 22 years. That's I, I think it's absolutely remarkable. He took an English club to to a Champions League final, which again is something that, off the top of my head, I think 
it's something that only Sir Alex, Rafa Benitez, Di Matteo, and I'm not forgetting anybody else, right? Oh, and Avram Grant. Yeah, those last two kind of ruin it for you, don't you? But anyway, um, and maybe Jurgen Klopp soon. You know, have that. Hey, all these things put together. I mean, this is part of his legacy as well. That's why it's, it's such a great debate because there are the people that say all that, and then there's other people that uh, are totally against him. Henry said it, and, and I know exactly the same. I know a lot of Arsenal supporters that have given up. They yeah, don't go anymore. Fine. They don't I, go anymore. So I, ha- how many managers actually turn people away from supporting their own club? I will, I will also say this, though, since, we are, since he's, you know, he's going and this is part of his legacy. Um, let's not forget the type of club that Arsenal were when he, when he inherited them. George Graham to Riach. You had a culture of, of, I know we've touched upon it, but a culture of drinking, a culture of not taking care of yourself, taking Arsenal to the le- to the level where they were side by side with Manchester United for that decade. That took a lot, and it's not just down to Arsene Wenger. I think David Dean obviously deserves a tremendous amount of credit for what happened in those ten years. But they could have gone an entirely different direction if they had appointed Brian Little or somebody in 1996. We could be having an entirely different conversation. <laughs> about Arsenal. He built this club. Not on his own, but he built this club. And I think for that, whatever might have happened in the last seven or eight years, he deserves a lot of credit and uh, and a lot of respect. All right, enough Wenger. Um, how about some quick hits? Manchester City romped to a comfortable 5-0 win over Swansea, and uh, they get their guard of honor. But Bill, at the end, City fans celebrated with a pitch invasion and reportedly could face a fine, at least according to our reporting today. Are you okay with that? I mean, I I appreciate health and safety. You guys will take this very seriously. But Guardiola says, there's a shorty quote. He says, well, I'm not going to tell anybody not to come onto the pitch, um, which is fine. You're not a steward. But it's a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm all for... Pitch invasions. How many times have you invaded the pitch, Bill? Um, at Old Trafford. Uh, I remember the last day of the 1986-87 season, West Ham Man City. Actually, Man City went down that day. Uh, I was wait, but you're West Ham. Tri- you're a United a fan. Yeah, but I just went to West Ham a lot. But you, so you invaded the pitch at West Ham. Uh, well, it, it was just a standard. Everybody went on the pitch on the it last was day. The 80s, last day of the different season. Different era. Like, anyway, Mick McCarthy, um, I think, was probably their centre-half, yeah. wasn't he? <laughs> um, so, I, 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 mean, I, I guess, the, the, from the FA's point of view, they should let they should say all the players must be allowed to leave the pitch first. Beyond that, it should just be an issue for the club. Do they mind if the grass is being churned up? I, I don't think it's a big deal. As long as the grass isn't dry, which brings us up to my next point. Liverpool held to a 2-2 draw by West Brom. I don't think they particularly care because all they're thinking about is the Champions League, but... Um, Klopp complained of a dry pitch. Is this a a fair complaint? The pitch was slightly dry, but it hadn't hadn't troubled Liverpool for much of the game. I'm not quite sure why he made the complaint. The problem was that they still didn't defend balls into their box particularly well. That's why West Brom and got back into the game. Is it easier to defend long balls into the box with a wet pitch? It is, absolutely. Of course it is. No, I don't think he hasn't got any cause for complaint, really. I don't know what he's talking about. It's five points in the last three games for uh, Darren Moore since replacing Alan Pardew. Bill, if you look at the arc of the season in the BP era, before Pards, and the AP era, after Pards, um, there's only one conclusion you can reach. Yeah, well, uh, 
Gary Megson as caretaker had two draws, then Pardew came in, complete disaster. Now Darren Moore's come in, unbeaten in three. Yes, it doesn't look and good. Pulis for... was also getting more points than he, Pardew was. He was getting was, more yeah. points, yeah. I mean, looking back, uh, Pulis and also Mark Hughes at Stoke, they had a, they had a good track record. It was a huge call to get rid of them early. Obviously, the both teams started badly this season, but uh, they've, they've shown they'll overcome difficulties over Pardew, and over again. Pardew for Arsenal, then. Stop <laughs> no. it. Uh, Arsenal thumb West Ham 4-1 and Alexander Lacazette bags two goals. Uh, Robbo, it was more of a 4-3-3 and they looked more comfortable. Is this a sign of a back-to-basics different finger or no, no, I, I, just, not really. just I think, a bad West Ham? Yeah, uh, West Ham played actually quite well in the first half and dominated quite a bit of possession, but uh, Arsenal, as they often do at home when they get on a roll and they score those late goals, 4-3-3 is what Wenger's played for most of his time at Arsenal. He, he, they, he, he always took 4-4-2. No, he, no years, he didn't. He always talked about playing 4-4-2, but Bergkamp played in behind the main centre forward. He didn't play up front with him. He played in the midfield position. So he always played really with a, a 4-3-3, but I think when they have the ball they go where so they like so Ray Parler played, played as a winger on occasions yes on occasions not on most occasions. of the time Crystal Palace and Watford draw nil-nil but Roy Hodgson is furious after Wilfried Zaha gets booked for diving um, do you have sympathy for him why does why does Zaha have more of a negative rep than some other people we could name for diving well like say Danny Welbeck yeah, uh, I mean the the first point is that is everybody. It, is it the English disease? This this diving, this trying yeah. to cheat. Yeah, I remember looking at it. There are more English players are booked for diving than foreigners. You know, pro rata and all this stuff. But I, uh, ho- I hope you don't export it because it doesn't creep into the <laughs> continental game. I, I mean, the, the, the point is that pretty much every player dives either to fall when not when it's not necessary or to exaggerate the pain it's just to alert the ref to the foul it's accepted I don't think it's, I think they should be punished they should be punished according to the laws but they're not so that's what happens but some players aren't uh, as good at diving as others they, they uh, push it too far so Zaha is one of them so while he was fouled by Mariapa on, on Saturday should have been a penalty a bit too much of a flamboyant dive after a bit too much uh, Rashford also dived badly well, no criticism of Rashford on this podcast so it, just well, stop it, there. It, it otherwise Scowcroft will be back no well Davinson okay. Sanchez came across uh, and impeded him near the touchline definitely uh, Rashford hurdled him and then fell over but what he should have done which most players done, just run into Sanchez's get hurt. Uh, well okay that, that's, a, that's a chance you take but, it, it, but it's not but it's not that Zaha cheats and every, right. nobody else does everybody else does he just hasn't got his diving quite right yet. Mourinho calls it helping the referee to make a decision. The PFA Player of the Year award goes to Mohamed Salah. Good choice. Or Robbo, are you in the Kevin De Bruyne camp? Uh, I'm going to... I think it's a... I would go for Kevin De Bruyne myself if I was voting because I thought he's been magnificent. He's done things that no other player can do. He's picked passes out that you can't even see when you're watching the game. Uh, so I think he's he's won the title with Man City. I'd have given it to... Kevin De Bruyne, but Salah's had a magnificent season as well. Played way beyond the expectations I thought of him. Simple question. Mm. If De Bruyne weren't there, would City have still won the title? And if Salah weren't there, would Liverpool have finished top four? If uh, What's more likely? Yeah, you probably, to think about yeah, it. Yeah, I'm having to think about United it, which means, that, which means you're going to say that Salah should be Of flirting. course, of course. De Bruyne is fantastic. Both of them, give it to both of them if you can, but... Take Salah out of Liverpool, and I think this season, I think they're they're, they're neck and neck with Chelsea. Take De Bruyne out, and oh look, 
There's Gundogan. There's freaking Foden. There's Bernardo Silva. There's some other dude in the middle. They still wouldn't and have been they as still good. Win. What? They still wouldn't have been as good. No, but they still won the title. Okay. Gab, one for you. Big top of the table clash in Serie A. Juventus hosting Napoli. I assume Juve squeezed out a late goal and took the three points. Is that true? There was a late goal, but it wasn't Juve who scored it. No, it was. Uh, uh, it, it was. It was tremendous. It was. It was Napoli who. For the whole game, Napoli just just kept attacking and attacking and attacking. Um, and Juventus were so negative and so horrendous. And I think Allegri absolutely got it completely wrong. Uh, the problem with Napoli is they attack, but Juve's still pretty good defensively. So, you know, Napoli couldn't break through. And in the end, ironically, it was a um, big towering header from the big man, Kalidou Koulibaly, deep in injury time, that gave uh, Napoli the win. Does this mean that Napoli are going to win the title? I'm not going to go out on that limb, but they have a shot because in the run-in, because the gap is now just a single point. Um, at halftime in, in last week's game, the gap was nine points. Uh, so that's how incredible this turnaround has been. Juve still have some very, very tough games. They're away to Inter next week, which I know it sounds ha ha ha. Inter, what, what have they been tough? But you know, if Perisic and the Bras decide to show up, they can make life difficult. And they're also away to Roma, who, um, of course, though by that point Roma will probably be distracted by having to play the Champions League final against Real Madrid. Ha, so ha, once I again, just. Serie A is the top league in Europe. I don't know if it's a top league, but it's certainly a very exciting finish. Hi there, and welcome to The Sweeper, which is the Times' Fantasy Football Tips service. My name's Charlie Scott, and as ever, Paddy Bombay's here with me. Hello there. And yeah, I mean, we both paid our free hit this weekend to varying degrees of success. I, for one, am not a fan. It, the, the temporary wildcard aspect of it just made me as indecisive as I have ever been. Yeah, taking Lacazette and Arnautovic out at about 11.20 on Saturday morning was not my finest hour. Yeah, I did Wayne Hennessy for Nick Pope, so that was good. Hennessy, clean sheet and bonus points for Palace. Then I swapped Monreal, who scored for Arsenal, for Mustafi, who didn't score for Arsenal, and swapped Aubameyang for Welbeck. I mean, bit of a failure all in all. Yeah. Hopefully some of you out there um, had a good free hit. Lacazette, as mentioned, uh, 13 points for Arsenal was the top of the pile. And uh, those reliable City midfielders, Sterling and the two Silvers, all pitched in with double figures as well. So there were, there were plenty of points to be found. But just not for anyone who picked Kyle Walker and Leroy Sane. <laughs> On the subject of Bernardo Silva, I would say for a, a very brief brag, it was only a, a few weeks ago that we mentioned he might be a nice differential heading into the end of the season. Once City have won the title, I'm expecting him to play a few games for them now. And he started off uh, pretty well there. He got his goal after Jesus missed the penalty and he got three bonus points too. Um, and uh, and also a little cheeky word for Salomon Rondon. I don't know if you mentioned, it must have been about five or six weeks back now. Uh, we said he might do okay despite West Brom having effectively given up. He's actually scored or assisted in five of their past six games. Uh, he's getting about six points a game. So um, that's the beauty of fantasy. If Even if the team is bombing, the players can still pitch in and be useful for you. Absolutely. And West Brom actually look like they're trying since old pards left. What have we got in store? Well, there's a double game week coming up uh, in 37. That is, of course, not this weekend, uh, but the following week. So um, it might be worth everyone saving their free transfer if possible and looking to stock up, uh, particularly on City and perhaps Spurs players. Their fixtures look incredible. Um, so try and find a player who's going to play both games uh, and there could be big points. And the subject of City... Their goalkeeper, 
Oh, absolutely. Edison, who I'm a fan of because he can get assists, which is great. Uh, but also, he came out after the game against Swansea and sounded a bit disappointed that he wasn't allowed to take the penalty, which Gabriel Jesus missed. Uh, he said he wants to score before the end of the season. So City have got nice, easy fixtures in store. Maybe worth getting in. Imagine those points if he kept a clean sheet and scored. I don't even know how much, how many points a keeper gets if they score. For all the usual stuff, just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash fantasy football, sign up. We'll send you an email every week with some tips. Uh, or you can go to Facebook and join our group. Just search for The Sweeper, uh, post your questions, and we will answer them right away. That's all we've got time for today. Many, many thanks to my guests, Stuart Robson and Bill Edgar, and of course, the franchise. Joining us down the phone, Henry Winter. Remember, it's just £8 for an eight-week trial. Just search The Times online, and this season you can access highlights of every game in the Premier League, Champions League, Europa League, FA Cup, as well as all our excellent content, uh, as well as the excellent content of the Sunday Times. We'll be back next Monday after weekend when Stoke and West Brom could both be relegated. Till then, bye-bye. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.